We're looking at the gift of Christ and God's gift to us. The question we want to ask this morning is, what is our reaction to the gift that God gives us? What is your gift reaction to God's Christmas gift of Jesus? That's what we want to explore this morning. God gave us the perfect gift in His Son, Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to unwrap four different gift reactions to the Christmas gift of Christ. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. You can turn there, the Christmas story, according to Matthew, the birth of Christ, the wise men, the announcement, them coming into Jerusalem. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. After Jesus, verse 1, was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what it was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. I'm not going to read 13 through 15. Joseph and Mary are warned to flee to Egypt instead of going back to Jerusalem because Herod is going to attempt to kill Jesus. What's Herod's response to this? Verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise man, he flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. So four gift reactions we're going to see this morning. Gift reaction number one, how are the different ways we can respond to the Christmas gift of Jesus? Well, one way is the way that Herod did, as we just saw. Some people want to destroy Jesus and worship themselves. And if you look, that's exactly how Herod just responded to the Christmas gift of Jesus. King Herod, he became king about 40 BC. And just to kind of give you an idea of Herod, his family The Herod that beheaded John the Baptist was his son. And then if you go to Acts, the Herod that beheaded James and then ultimately died of worms because he thought he was God, that's his grandson. So this is the family line. This is the kind of people, the kind of person Herod is and that he passes on to his children. Herod was so wicked, he was a guy who murdered his own wife, who murdered his mother-in-law, who murdered two of his brothers and even murdered three of his own children. They were a threat to his kingdom. This is the type of guy that Herod is. So evil that 30 years before Jesus was born, he rounded up a bunch of good religious leaders, and just to do it, I guess, he had them murdered. He had them killed just because he could. He was so wicked that when he found out he was going to die, this is what he told his followers, his leaders, and his court. He said, here's what I want to happen. 
On the day that I die, he rounded up all of the most loved people in Jerusalem. He had them arrested, and he told his leaders, he said, on the day that I die, I want you to kill every one of them. That way I know there will be tears in Jerusalem on the, way, on the day that I die. This is the type of guy that Herod was. And his reaction to Jesus was that he wanted to destroy Jesus and, and to kill him. To anything. Bottom line here, Herod's philosophy is anybody, anyone, or anything that's a threat to my kingdom, to my power, I want to eliminate it. I want to get it away from me, and I'll do whatever it takes to eliminate that threat to my power. That was his reaction. And that's why we see in verses 1 and 2, the three wise men, the caravan, hits town, words out on the street. Jesus has been born, this new baby that's going to be the king of the Jews. Herod hears about this. That's a threat to his kingdom. And so he is disturbed, the verse says. That verse means to be shaken at your core. He was deeply disturbed. Why? Because this new king was a threat to his kingdom. So what does he do? He brings the wise men in and he plays nice. He says, hey, listen, you guys go on your way, but when you find him this new king, come tell me because I want to go worship him. Of course, that's a lie. He doesn't want to worship him. He wants to kill him. That's his whole goal. He wants to kill this new king. This is what his reaction. So they, as we read, the wise men are warned. They go a different direction. Mary and Joseph, we didn't read that part. They go to Egypt instead of returning home. So what does Herod do? He says, all right, well, in order to try to take care of this threat, all of the male children, two years and under, in Bethlehem, kill them. He gets his men, his henchmen, to go and kill all of these babies. Historians estimate Bethlehem was small. Historians estimate that between 15 and 20 babies were killed as a result of this order. Incredibly evil. This is Herod. This is his reaction. And in our day and time, we have people that may, maybe they're not that brutal. Some are, but they have the same reaction to the gift of Jesus. They want to destroy him, anything to do with, with Jesus, God's kingdom, God's work, and God's people. And we're going to look at how this plays out in the modern day time. First, there are evil governments and false religions that want to destroy Jesus and worship themselves. Anything that's a threat all over the world. Christians are martyred every day. People are martyred, or at least persecuted, for the gospel. In the past decade, it's estimated that nearly a million, over 900,000 believers, have been martyred for the faith. This isn't just Old Testament stuff or New Testament stuff. This is modern day. According to Gordon Cornwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, a research firm that worked with them discovered over 900,000. There are governments, there are evil Groups, governments that want to, false religions that want to destroy God, they want to kill God's people and anything to do with the Lord, the Lord's work. There are also, there's a group called secular humanists. Now, secular humanists, they don't want to kill anybody, but they do want to kill the thought of God. They don't want God mentioned in schools. They don't want God mentioned in the Pledge of Allegiance. They want in God we trust taken off of our money. They don't want to kill anybody, but they want the thought of God removed completely. They want to destroy the thought of God and not to have any, anybody in God's name mentioned anywhere in society. There are also atheists. Again, these folks aren't going to kill anybody, but they sure do want to, to, to kill the idea of God. They want to prove that God doesn't exist. They don't believe that God exists, and they don't want anybody else to believe that God exists. 
A few Christmases ago, this was a few years back, in, in New York City, the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel, an atheist group put up a, a billboard. And I want to show you a picture of this billboard. If you can't read it, here's what it says. It says, you know, it's a myth. It's the wise men traveling. You know, it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. And of course, we say Jesus is the reason for the season. This is their answer to that. There is a group, atheists, who don't believe in God, and they want to prove that God does not exist. That's the heart of King Herod. He didn't believe what the Bible said. He didn't believe God, and he wanted to destroy the idea of God. So, hey, keep this guy, Jesus, away from me. And then there's a fourth group of people that they're not going to hurt anybody. They don't want to hurt anybody. They're not even really necessarily out to destroy God in the same way, but they have the heart of King Herod, and here's how they have the heart of King Herod. Okay, I believe that God exists, but I don't want anything in my life to threaten me running my life. So this is a threat to me running my life. I'm going to get rid of it. I don't want anything to do. I mean, yeah, I believe that's fine for you, but I want to call the shots in my life. I want to run my own life. So the fourth group are those who want to destroy God in their minds and in their hearts. Again, they don't want to hurt anybody. They don't even want to to prove to you that God doesn't exist, but they sure don't want God running their lives. And, And that's the danger. That's the danger that we all have. We have this temptation to think we have it all together and want to call the shots and not let God be Lord of our lives. You know what's amazing about this story is even King Herod, even he could have been saved. He had the testimony of the wise men. If you go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he had the testimony of the word of God. He could have chosen to go with the wise men to Bethlehem, but instead he chose to destroy Jesus and to worship himself. That's the first group. The second group, the second reaction, gift reaction, are those who disregard Jesus and worship society. Verse 3, you see that Herod was troubled, but not only he was troubled, all of Jerusalem with him. Now, this isn't Herod's reaction. This is the reaction of the people in Jerusalem. These are Jews. These are good people, religious people, a part of the church of the day. And instead of going with the wise men, think about it. They should have been aware. They should have been ready for this. They they knew the prophecies. When these wise men came into into town, the words on the street, they heard, hey, the long-awaited king of Jerusalem, the king of the Jews has been born. Their reaction should have been, okay, how, how soon can we get packed? Let's go. And maybe a few people did, but from the word of God, we have no record of any of them going. Not only that, they were troubled in the same way that Herod was. So why in the world, would what would cause somebody to just ignore the gift of Jesus? It happens every day, but like these folks, good people, religious people, why would they choose to ignore the gift of Christ as these individuals did? And, and for us, I think a big part of it is because they just are comfortable. They worship society. And what I mean by that, no, they're not practicing idol worship or rituals, but they're so comfortable in their lives, they, they're, they're unwilling to take a step of faith. Because here's the thing, and listen, in love, this is the threat for the Christian church in America. We can come to church at Christmas. We can do the candlelight, peace on earth, get a Christmas card with a verse about Jesus on it and send it. But then the other 364 days of the year or whatever, we, hey, I'm running my own life. I, I don't, I, 
as far as this is concerned, this is an interference to me doing life the way that I want to. I'm just comfortable the way life is. So the rest of the year, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And that's one of the biggest threats, I believe, to the Christian church are people who say they believe, they go through the ritual, but their lives don't show it. And so two reasons why I think maybe these citizens ignore Jesus. One is just worldliness. In the American Christian church, people come to church, preacher starts preaching about sin, and everybody's reaction is, you tell them, preacher. You tell them. Sick them. Because it's so very easy for me to recognize worldliness in your life, but it's so very difficult to recognize it in my own life. But that's the reality is that many of us tend toward worldliness because our lives are comfortable. And so the, the, the reaction here, I think, is in part because of worldliness. A study from a few years ago in On Mission magazine asked Americans, what is the priority of your life? And here's what the, the responses were. 45% said family is the top priority of their life. That's good, good priority. 20% said their health and wellness is the top priority of their lives. 17% said their finances. Only 12% said their faith was the top priority of their lives. Now listen, don't get me wrong, family is huge. It should be a priority, a top priority. Your health and wellness, you should take care of yourselves. You should make sure that your kids are taken care of. Your finances, I mean, you should be wise with your finances. But hear me, those things are because of Jesus, not to be put in place of Jesus. He needs to be the top, but also the center of each of those priorities of our lives. He needs to be at the center of everything that we do. David Wells said this about worldliness. He said, worldliness is that system of values in any given age that has as its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, which makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's worldliness. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong. And for that reason, it makes what's wrong seem normal. Is that not a description of the culture we live in? What's, what once was considered wrong is now perfectly acceptable. That's worldliness. There is no standard of right and wrong. Worldliness can sometimes cause us in our gift reaction to ignore Jesus, the gift of Christmas, just to completely disregard him. There's a temptation not to worship Santa Claus because we would never do that, but we do tempt to worship Santa Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus, I've been good all year. I haven't been naughty. I've been nice. Here's the list of the things that I want. And since I've been nice, since I haven't been naughty, if you'll just give me these things, a nice home, a nice job, car, whatever, if you'll give me my list of things, then I'll be perfectly content and I'll be comfortable and I'll be happy. That's worldliness. And that's the temptation. I think that's probably why a lot of people did not go. Don't know for sure, but I think that's, they were just comfortable in their lives. They didn't want to make the journey to Bethlehem. A second reason, I think maybe, maybe they were just busy. Maybe they were just too busy. If there's ever anything that's plagued our culture today, it's busyness. We know, as a matter of fact, you're not considered important. There are studies that, that if you're an American and you're not as busy as you can be, you're not considered as important as others who are busy. So we just fill our schedules with everything just to prove that we're important. We're too busy. Busyness causes us to ignore things that are important, should be important to us. Huffington Post research found just recently, the reason that one of the top three reasons that unregistered voters did not vote in this, this year's midterm is because they were just too busy. 
registered voters. While it wasn't the top three, it was the same percentage. There were other reasons above it at different percentages, but same percentages of registered voters did not vote because they were just too busy. A few years ago, a Nazarene college in Colorado, they studied why people don't attend church. And really, it wasn't because, hey, I didn't feel like the people weren't nice to me. That wasn't the reason. Or I don't like the music or the preaching. That wasn't really the reason. The reason given for why these people did not attend church was that they were just too busy. As a matter of fact, 55% of people in America said they don't attend church because I'm just too busy. I don't have enough time. Pew Research found that 26% of Christians do not attend church because they're just too busy. They don't have time to go to church. 40% of people who claim to know Christ say they don't read their Bible because they're just too busy. My schedule's too full. I can't find time to read God's Word. Barna found that if you are a baby buster, if you were born between 1965 and 83, Gen X is also that group. 53% of those who were born, baby busters, described themselves as too busy. Baby boomers, if you were born between 1946 and 64, 49% of you say you are too busy. A new survey, millennials and Gen Z, that's the name given to those born after 1996. They are the loneliest generations. And before you pass judgment, no, it's not because they've got their heads buried in their devices. They say they do not form relationships because they're just too busy. They don't have time. They're lonely. That's why one of the reasons suicide rates are where they are in that generation, in that age group. They don't take vacations from work. Don't say they're lazy. Some of them may be, but they don't, they don't even take vacations because they're too busy. They've got too much to do. They may even take time off work, but they don't go anywhere. They're just too busy. Too busy to vote. Too busy to go to church. Too busy to build relationships. Too busy to read the Bible. Too busy just to take a vacation. We're too busy. A few years back, this phenomenon started to happen. Mostly these are cities in other countries, but, but cities started to use optical illusion speed bumps. Have any of y'all seen these? They're crazy. The first one I ever saw, I brought a picture. It's a, it's a 3D illusion on a street. It is a 3D optical illusion of a little girl chasing a ball across the street to get people to slow down. Am I the only person that thinks that's a bad idea? A little girl, I mean, can you imagine? I, I don't know what's, I think they're still using different forms. I don't know if they're using this one anymore, but bad idea. But, but what does that say about us that it takes a little girl playing in the street to get us to slow down? We're just too busy. We've got too much going on in our lives. So this year, let me challenge you. Look at your life. I'll do the same. Let's do this together. Let's look at our lives. Look at our calendars. How can we simplify our lives? Are there some things in our lives that maybe we could do without? We get wrapped up in, in, in work, and in school, the home, the yard, sports, recreation, all of these things we fill our lives with. Are there some things maybe we could do without to make more room to put Jesus first and in the center of our lives? Let's simplify our lives. Activity is not the answer. Activity is not the answer you're looking for. And life activity does not mean that you're achieving the meaning and purpose your soul craves. You can be busy and accomplish absolutely nothing or very little. Activity is not the answer. Let's look at the third reaction. First, Herod wants to destroy Jesus. He wants to worship himself. The second group, the people in Israel, they want to disregard Jesus and worship society. They're comfortable. They're busy. For whatever reason, they choose not to go to Bethlehem. 
They choose to stay where they are, so they just disregard Jesus. The third gift reaction are those who deny Jesus and worship spirituality. They're, they're religious, and they're all four going to church. The religious leaders here who are religious leaders in the nation of Israel, Jewish religious leaders, but don't know God. Look at verse 4 again. So he, Herod, assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, the chief priests and the scribes. Pay attention to that. These are the religious leaders of the day. He assembles them, and he asks them, where is this Messiah going to be born? Now, do they say, we have no idea? Is that what they say? No, they know exactly where he's going to be born. In verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. They told him, because this is what is written by the prophet. They know the prophecy. They know the word of God. They've read it. They've studied it. And you, Bethlehem, they say, the prophecy says, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people. These are the religious good guys. These aren't the people who are trying to kill Christians. At least at this point, they're not. I mean, these, these are the religious leaders of the day. These are the guys that go to church. They teach the, the law. They teach the word of God. They believe it. They say they believe it. They've got the scriptures. They have a copy of the scriptures. They can even take you and point you to God in the scriptures. But they've chosen not to check it out for themselves. They don't believe it in their heart. They believe it in their head. But they refuse to go see Jesus for himself. They know the prophecy. Don't, it's not like they didn't know. They knew exactly where Jesus was going to be born. They knew the prophecy. The wise men come. The buzz is all over town. They should have been packing up along with all of the other people of Israel and heading that way. Instead, they just stay right where they are because they're comfortable in their religious rituals, but they're not willing to give their hearts to the Lord. If you look on MapQuest or whatever map you choose, Google, Earth, whatever, Bethlehem is seven miles from Jerusalem. Seven miles. But in these guys' hearts, it's a million miles away. They know it. They can point you to it, but they're not willing to go themselves. In our day and age, it's amazing. We have to be so careful. We, we can't be gullible. Just because somebody looks the part, just because they are teaching what appears to be the Scripture, just because there's stained glass windows and a globe spinning or whatever, you can't just believe that Christ is really at the center of what those folks are doing. There are a lot of people who claim to be messengers of the Lord, but are not. We can't just take it and take them for what they say they are. And I listen, I do with me, everything I say, one of the reasons I give you a handout, go home, study it for yourself and see if I'm not telling you the truth. I mean, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong from time to time because I'm just not perfect, but but you need to test for yourselves whether what's being taught by me, your Sunday school teacher, whoever, test and see if it's real. If you were to go to these guys, these religious leaders, there are a lot of folks in society today, religious professors, some pastors even. You were, if you were to go to them and say, hey, I'm reading this stuff, and I, here's what I've come to. Here's the conclusion. This is what I believe it's saying. And I ask them, do you believe that, that man is completely depraved in sin, that we are sinful? And that there is nothing we can do on our own to make ourselves acceptable to God. And that because of that, and because of his love, God sent his son. 100% man, 100% God, born of a virgin. He lived in his words, he said he was God. In his life, he proved that he was God. 
And then out of an incredible act of love, the greatest act of love anybody's ever seen, he gave his life. He died for our sins to pay our price that we owed. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. One day he's going to come back and judge everybody. And that he himself in his own words declared his exclusivity when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. No other paths to God, Jesus said, except by me, only me. If you were to ask this religious professor or some of these pastors out there, if you were to say, hey, do you believe that? Some of them, their response would be, what are you, crazy? Nobody believes that. Just one way to heaven? Absolutely not. Now listen, I'm the first guy to say, let's not just label any big megachurch pastor as a heathenist or a heretic. That, that is unfair. A lot of those churches are doing what some of, some of the other churches should be doing. But there are some guys out there, and there are certainly some liberal religious professors who claim religion, but they don't believe it for themselves. It hasn't transformed their lives. These are some of the people who react to God's gift of Christmas by by denying Jesus and just worshiping their religion. For them, it's just a set of rules, and it's a gold star that I achieve. That that if I do the right things and if I follow the rules, that, that when I get there, God will reward me by letting me into heaven. If you scroll through the guide this Christmas, if you go to the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, inevitably there are going to be some shows that come on. Shows like, Who is the Real Jesus? What's the real meaning of Christmas? Let me just give you, go ahead and give you a preface. Those shows were produced by liberal professors who do not believe in the Bible and do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Their their goal is mainly to try to disprove or to show you how ridiculous it is. But there are those people out there. I've held on to this article for a few years now, an article that was in faithalaska.com. It was titled, So Was It Wise Men or the Three Stooges? A guy by the name of Mark Allen Powell in his book called Chasing the Eastern Star suggests that Matthew, or whoever wrote the book, he says, wanted the Magi to look like bumbling and bungling astrologers, foolish, more like stooges than like wise men. That's what he, he claims. Paula Fredrickson, who at least was, I believe still is, professor of early Christianity and New Testament at Boston University said this. She said, I, can, I can't think, this is, this is a religious professor of early Christianity and New Testament. She said, I can't think of any New Testament scholar who takes the gospel seriously and the birth of Jesus to be historically accurate. Now listen, folks, I will be the last pers- person to claim that I'm a scholar. I'm not. I'm just a redneck from Birmingham, Alabama. But I believe that this is true. Not only that, I know it's true because I've experienced it in my own life. I don't care what any of the experts say, but there are people out there who will know the stories. They could even teach me some things about the stories, but they just don't believe it in their heart. There's never been a transformation. So the question for us as we enter Christmas is this. If you have a religious background, maybe you've gone to church your whole life. You've filled the pews. You've done the, the Jesus thing. You've gone to church, especially at Christmas, Easter, whatever the case may be. You follow the rules. You think you're a good person. Here's the question for you. Has it changed your life? Is your life, has it been transformed by the baby that was born? in the manger that grew up and gave his life so that you could be saved. Not just that you believe it, but is your life different now? Because religion in three words is this. Religion in three words is get to work. 
Christianity, in three words, is it is finished. Jesus did the work of salvation. We just have to receive it. But when we do, he transforms our life. So do you believe it? Or have you believed it and allowed it to transform your life? Some want to destroy Jesus, worship self. Some want to disregard Jesus and worship society. Some want to deny Jesus and worship their own religion. We just talked about those. And some, the, the fourth group, this is the good one. <laughs> the fourth group, they want to be devoted to Jesus and worship the Savior. This is the wise men's reaction. And this is what hopefully our reaction is this Christmas. That, that we worship Christ, give him everything. In verse 1, it says this about the wise men. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, the wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem. And when you look down at verse 11, you see that they arrived at a home. And if you've got the wise men in your nativity scene, don't freak out. Historically, it's not entirely accurate. Verse 11 says they came to a home. Now listen, don't go home and throw away your wise men if you've got them in your front yard. It's all right. I mean, but, but we need to understand what really happened. This was at a later time. That's why Herod said all boys two years and younger, he, he, was, he had grown a little bit. They were in a home, and, and the wise men come, and we don't know who these guys were really. I mean, we've got some names. We don't know exactly where they were from. They're from the east. Most scholars believe they were from Persia, Babylon, modern-day Iraq and Iran, but we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't even really know how many there were. We know there's a huge caravan, and we've got these three guys' names. We know there were three gifts given, but we don't, I mean, there may have been a lot more than that. So we don't really know who they were, except for these three names that we have. We don't know where they were from exactly, but we do know something by this title, wise men, about them. These guys were national leaders. They were very educated men. They had studied the stars. They, they were very educated. They were considered wise men. I do tend to believe, and again, Scripture doesn't say this, but I think drawing some natural conclusions here, I believe these guys were from Persia, modern-day Iraq and Iran. And I believe that they were influenced by Daniel's teaching. If you look in Daniel chapter 2, he was head of the wise men of his day, and he taught them the Scriptures. And I believe what happened here is that, the, that Daniel teaching about the one true God was so powerful. It had such an impact on these guys' lives that they passed it down generation to generation to generation until now you have this huge caravan, wise men coming from the east based on what they believed in their hearts in faith, expecting to see Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Messiah. I, I believe it was influenced by Daniel. This huge caravan, they come and they have faith in their heart. Look at this reaction, verse 9. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When, the star, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they fell on their knees and worshipped him. Stop right there. They worshipped him. What does it mean? We come to church on Sunday morning, we worship, we say that word a lot. What does it mean? Well, let me give you a definition. We'll talk more about this week after next. Worship is giving God the full affection of my heart, all of it, and the full attention of my mind. Everything. Giving him myself. That, yes, that's what we do when we sing, but that's what we should do with our lives. These men, they came, they fell on their faces, their knees, they worshiped God. And then, verse 11 continued, they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Here is their reaction, the reaction to the Christmas gift of Jesus. First of all, God drew them to himself, the word of God. Drew them to himself. They read and they believed what God's word said about this king that would be born, the Messiah. They believed it. God drew them to himself. Second, they believed the word of God. Third, they went to him. They turned to him in faith. And then fourth, we see that they opened their treasures. Well, the Bible tells us that where your treasure is, your what? Your heart. So essentially, they're opening their hearts to him. Four steps. God draws. We read or hear the word and believe. We turn to him. We do our part in trusting in him. We open our hearts to him. And then our lives are changed forever. In the Near East, verse 11, first of all, it says they presented him gifts. This, this phrase is, is the same phrase that's used seven times in the New Testament. And each time it's used to describe an offer, offering given to God. So they're giving God an offering. That's exactly their intent here. And, and, and in, in Eastern, in this culture, in this day and time, you would give a gift to somebody who was your superior out of respect, out of honor. And so they're honoring him as king, and they're giving him gifts that are fit only for a king. It is no doubt, it is very clear that they are coming to him in faith, they believe, and they are recognizing this baby as who he is. Not just the king, but the king of kings. An offering to God, a gift fit for a king. So you put it all together, and here is their reaction. Here is our reaction, what it should be. God is drawing us to himself. He initiates salvation. We would never come to God on our own. He draws us to himself. We hear the word of God, or we read the word of God, and we believe. Yeah, I believe that's true. But then there has to be a decision. You have to unwrap the gift. You've got to turn to him in faith. You've got to open up your heart to him. But we open up our hearts to him. We submit to him as the one and only true God, the Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as the only Savior of the world. And he comes into our lives. We submit to him because I recognize that he is God. He is the king. And I'm going to fall on my face and I'm going to worship him. But more than that, I recognize, first of all, that I, I know who I am. I'm a sinner desperately in need of forgiveness. I, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I recognize who he is as, as Jesus, the one and only true Savior. So yes, he draws me to himself and I believe and I follow my face in worship, but then now he is my everything. My gift reaction to him is that Jesus is everything. So I want the attitudes of my life, the actions of my life, the words that I say to be an act of worship to him. I want everything that I say, everything that I do, all of my life to prove to everybody that's watching that I belong to Jesus and that he is Lord. The gift reaction that they had that we should have is that Jesus, yes, I believe you've saved me, set me free. Now you've given me meaning and purpose. My life is yours and I want everybody to know that. It is living a life of worship. They fell on their faces, but they were, yes, I'm going to worship Jesus. But we, we don't have the testimony after that. I believe that they probably did. We need to worship Jesus with our lives. In our day and age, that should be the gift reaction. So how have you reacted to Jesus? Now, I know you've heard this before, but the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh was an oil that was used for embalming. So even as a baby, there was always the cross. Always. 2 Corinthians 2.9 tells us that 
Paul says, thank God for this indescribable gift. What gift? Jesus gave himself. He gave his life on the cross. He died to pay the price for sin that you and I could not pay. It is the indescribable gift. And he's saying, listen, folks, some of you may be here today and you're tired, you're worn out. He's saying, if you'll just come to me, if you'll just believe, if you'll just stop trying to earn your way into heaven, if you'll stop trying to follow the rules, we, we obey God because we love him, not because it's going to make us righteous. He says, if you'll just stop all of this work that you're trying to do to get into heaven, if you'll stop all the ritual, and if you'll just come to me, if you'll believe, if you'll accept the gift that I want to give you, don't set this aside. If you'll accept this gift, then I will come into your life, and I'll give you meaning and purpose in your life. I'll give you a life. This, this about more than the here and now, the temporary. And hey, when that day comes, when you breathe your last, forget about hell because the next face you see will be mine in heaven. In heaven for all of eternity. But here's the thing. Just like this gift, if I were to give it, first of all, you've got to receive it and then you've got to open it. Jesus says, hey, I'm not going to force you. I'm offering you this gift, but you have to receive the gift. You have to have the reaction of, yes, I believe, and I'm accepting you as the way, the truth, and the life. So what's your gift reaction this Christmas? There are those who want to destroy Jesus. There are those who want to deny Jesus. There are those who just don't want to be bothered by Jesus. Because here's the truth. Our reaction to Jesus is our gift, Christmas gift to God. So if you destroy, you deny, you just don't want to be bothered by it, that's like a slap in the face to Jesus saying, what you did isn't worth anything. But if you react like the wise men, we give God the glory and the honor that he deserves. That, that's the gift he wants from you this Christmas, the indescribable gift. We talked about how you react to gifts. Well, there's an article. There used to be one on ehow.com. You ever been there? That's the website that's supposed to tell you how to do everything. There's a wikihow.com has an article that actually tells you what to do if you get a bad gift. So if you're at a party with your family, you open up a present and it's like, I don't know, 10 different types of sausage and eight different types of cheese. It tells you how to react so you don't insult. Or if you get like a nose hair trimmer, thank you for the, for the worst insult, public humiliation in front of all of my family and friends. So, so it tells you how, do you, how are you supposed to react when you get a bad gift? So if you're a kid and you get socks for Christmas, it tells you how not to hurt your parents or your grandmother's feelings. Amy Dicker, Dickinson, I believe is her name, it took over for Ann Landers. Yeah, Amy Dickinson, Ask Amy, the article, the Chicago Tribune. She also has a radio show, and a few years ago she posted to her readers, she said, tell me what the worst gift you've ever received was. And there were a lot of responses, but on the radio show, this lady called in, guys, I don't recommend this, this lady called in and said her husband bought her a cemetery plot for Christmas. <laughs> Somebody said he told her, I'm not going to buy you another present until you use this one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. The idea here and how to respond to even bad gifts is that it's not the gift that matters. It's the love behind the gift. That's the whole point is that somebody took time to give you something. So it's not the gift that matters. It's the love behind the gift. Well, with the Christmas gift of Jesus, I'm going to tell you, first and foremost, it is the gift that matters. And the love behind the gift, I mean, how do you put into words the love behind the gift? The only thing I can think of is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What's your reaction? 
destroy, deny, don't want to be bothered, set this aside, it's a threat to my life, me doing things my way, or meaning, purpose, eternal life with Jesus in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your indescribable gift, the gift of your son Jesus. There's nothing we could ever do to accurately describe, even to fully appreciate, to repay you for that gift. But what we can do is give you our lives, and our lives can be a response, an act of worship. Everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we do, say our actions, glorifying you and pointing others to you, living out our gratitude. But that starts, God, with first receiving, accepting, and unwrapping that gift. And I pray, Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today who does not know you, who hasn't accepted, received the gift, the Christmas gift of your son Jesus, your death, your resurrection, the only way to be forgiven of sins, freed from sin, and secured in eternity with you in heaven. If somebody here today hasn't accepted that gift, I pray that they would come and receive it. Allow me to explain to them during this time of decision how to accept it. For those of us here today who know you, what's our gift reaction? Are we making time for you? Are you at the center of our lives? Are you at the top and at the center? Do our lives reflect what we say we believe? Is our life an act of worship to you? And if not, what needs to happen to get our lives in order? so that we can accurately reflect our gratitude, what should be our gratitude for what you've done. Lord, there may be other decisions. I don't know how you're leading individuals, but I pray that as you speak, we would respond in obedience to your word. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?